I wanted to share some brief thoughts on all the social discord and protests and anger and, and really very, very sad scenes coming out of Eretz Israel. I'm living here in Israel, here for the summer, obviously, living through it, watching it, living and suffering through it. And I have to say, I've been in Israel close to 40 years, and I don't remember scenes that were this disheartening because it's in Aschinam and it's Jew on Jew. And it's Erev Tisha B'Av, and it's very depressing, and I hear a lot of simplistic statements and equating and drawing analogies, and just sinaschinam, and can we get better sinaschinam, and it's just like the Bayashani, and I think it's important to understand it, to analyze it, to know why it's so complex, and then of course, I'll give two narratives, the narrative I choose to live by, and you can choose whether it's your narrative. But this is not part of the series on the three weeks that I know some people are listening to. This is just some separate comments. And I hope that if you listen to this before Tisha B'Av, it'll lend some clarity. As you know, generally in life, when confrontations and disagreements are multi-layered, when they're not one-dimensional about a particular issue, they're much harder to solve. You know, like say, for example, in family. Family tensions and squabbles and, and arguments because it's never just one issue. It's the issue you're arguing about and it's the past and it's p- positions in the family and other hurts in the family. So anytime situations are multi-layered, it's very difficult to solve and they become very heated and very painful. And we're going through a four-layered clash in Israel. And that's the first step towards understanding this. And these four layers have been, I would say, uh, brewing, bubbling beneath the surface for 46 years or for 75 years. Again, let's take a little bit of historical perspective. Obviously, the state is 75 years old. But from 1948 till 1977, nice round number, 30, 29 years, 30 years, first 30 years, the entire country, its culture, its government, its politics, its institutions were governed more or less by a white, elite, Ashkenazi, secular establishment. And then in 1977, the great revolution of Anachem Begin, and now it's more Mizrahi, Mideastern, different type of leadership in Andrian. And for the last 46 years, since 1977, there's been this dual narrative, and I'll describe the dual narrative which has been split along four different fronts, and not everyone falls into all four fronts, and that's what makes it so sticky. So let's take a look at the current confrontation about political reform, judicial reform, or not. So the front layer, the top layer, is a judicial political issue. Let's call it political. Are you in favor of judicial reform, or are you opposed to judicial reform? Um... As in any democracy, separation of powers, the role of the Supreme Court, the role of the government, take it in a bottle, and it's obvious that's not why the situation is so overheated and so uncontrollable. Every democracy in the world goes through these adjustments. But that's one layer. And many, many cases, that's the primary expression, the placards, the signs, the statements. But there's so much more bubbling beneath the surface, as there is with everything in life. Everything in our life is beneath the surface in the psychological subterranean layers. The next layer down, if you go one more layer down, you'll hit a ethnic divide. Now, these are not tight divisions, obviously. These are not neat divisions. But by and large, those who are in favor of judicial reform 
tend to be, not all, tend to be associated with, especially or a large part, that ethnicity, that sector of the population, the what we call Svardim or Mizrahi origin, that felt that for years, and they continue to feel that they've been discriminated against, cast as second citizens, cast as league bet, not respected. And every election in Israel, if you're paying attention, there's always a statement by an Ashkenazi candidate that expresses contempt for the riffraff and the common people and the, the, the there's actually the, the word RC, which in Israel means the bums and the people who are not uh, as civilized and elegant. And, and aside from the political divide, there's that second level where the people who are pro-judicial reform feel that the Supreme Court was a tool, was always a tool in, in, they, in their minds in discriminating or in entrenching this Ashkenazi elite Western European establishment at the cost of, and many of the constituents of the Likud party, of Mizrahi origin, of uh, Jews that come from Arabic lands. So all of a sudden you've got a lot of tentacles to this whole debate. It's not just political, but if you go down and look at the roots, the roots are attaching themselves to ethnicity and to um, race. And those are always dark issues that people fight very passionately about. You go one level down, and you're facing another issue. I don't even know if this is the third level or the fourth level, but let's call it the third level. I'm not sure whether three is four or four is three, but there are four levels. The next level down is not just political, pro-reform or anti-reform, and it's not just ethnic, Ashkenazi elite versus Sephardic, we would say, common man, proletariat, Pashtun in our language, but it's, it's a religious, it's still a religious debate. Now, it may not seem that way, because when you look at the protests, the signs and the placards, very few of them mention religion and religious issues, and a lot of the people supporting judicial reform are, are from people on that. But if you look very, very carefully, the statistics show that other people supporting judicial reform either religious and high proportion. I'm not introducing my politics at all into this conversation. I don't even know if I have a political position. I'm confused. Just trying to make sense of it and lend clarity to all this confusion and all this haze. But by and large, the people who support judicial reform tend to be religious or religious-minded, what we call an Israel Masarati, who still want religious symbols and want a religious nature to our state. And, and they feel that the Supreme Court, the judicial system, has routinely tried to erase and eliminate any judicial, any, excuse me, Jewish or religious symbol from our common, uh, common public commons. And by and large, again, these don't cut neatly. There are many religious people who are opposed to judicial reform. But by and large, in the general sense, those who are opposing judicial reform, they tend to be non-religious non-traditional, who don't want and probably are comfortable seeing the Supreme Court as that instrument that defends against the encroach in their minds of religion into the public sector. So that's the third level. And they get to the fourth level. Again, I'm not sure. I've been thinking about it a little bit, having a time to think that it's been a busy day. What's three and what's four? But the next level, or another level, is not just political, pro-judicial reform posters, that's what sounds like the protests are about, 90% of the placards and the signs and the conversations, you get down, there's an ethnic divide, you get even further down, there's a religious divide, even further down, 
and there's just an identity of our nation. Is this a Jewish nation for the Jewish people, built on the principles of democracy, or is this a democracy for the Jews? And it happens to be that many other people are here also, but democracy is more important than a national state for the Jews. And the Supreme Court also, in many people's minds, has always, because of its roots in law and democracy, so it has been seen as a body that tilts away from nationalistic agendas and more towards um, pluralistic, humanistic agendas. But that, because that's its job, the job of a court is to go all prejudices out and just hold up situations and cases to the pure letter of the law. And the pure letter of the law in Israel has to be written in a way that doesn't favor one group or one, a Jew over a Palestinian or a Jew over an Arab Israeli citizen. So it's not, again, I'm not taking sides. I'm just analyzing or assessing. So you've got these four fault lines. And if you attend the protest... They're talking about judicial reform, that's not really the issue. They're talking about deep, deep divides. And what happened was three things. Over the past 75 years, these divides existed, but there were three reasons that they weren't expressed so confrontationally. One is because they were muted by the security situation. We were struggling to defend our country, Common enemies united us. We ignored these differences. One for all, all for one. And we defended our country and we didn't pay that much. They came off. We joked about them. We fought about them. We argued about them. But they weren't as existential and they didn't feel as decisive. Number two, aside from the security situation, everything was fresh and new and we were expanding and growing. Very often the best recipe to prevent fighting and dispute is just to create enough space for all parties to feel they're getting theirs, that they're fulfilling their wishes and their dreams and their agendas and their aspirations. And um, let's give a personal example. Okay, I had the privilege to teach in Yeshiva Haaretzion with two people who were world-class Tamir Chachamim, world-class leaders, Rabbi Aaron Lichtenstein or Rabbi Yudah Amital. I'm sure many of the listeners have obviously heard of Rabbi Lichtenstein. Fewer have heard of Rabbi Amital. I've tried to popularize Rabbi Amital in his writings, but trust me, in terms of his stature, his impact, his influence, his, his personality. He was of that league of Rav Aaron Lichtenstein. Differences between the two. And part of what made this relationship so powerful is that their harmony and their love and the way they complemented one another. It was a thing of beauty. It was really a spectacle to see. And I'm often ask, well, what about the yeshiva now? Now there are three Rosh Hashivas and everyone gets along. There's no fighting. But you can't re- re- recreate that relationship that existed between Rav Aaron Lichtenstein and Rav Yudal It's one for the ages. It's a legend. So they say, well, obviously the Rosh Hashivas today don't have that same loving, affectionate partnership. And I say, you know what? The yeshiva is so large and it is expanding so quickly and is involved in so many areas of Torah and the Torah world that it's fine because every each Rosh Hashiva has their sector, their interest, their duty, their responsibility. Some are more external, some are more internal. And when you're so busy fulfilling your dreams and your wishes, and there's so much room to grow, it's only in very tight, suffocating, minute environments where everyone steps on each other's toes. So for the first 75 years of our state, we stepped on each other's toes, but we overlooked it because everything was just growing and expanding and fresh. And the third issue, and this is something which unfortunately came about in a very 
painful, painful matter this week. It's not only did the common security threat mute our differences, and not only did this grand and rapid euphoric expansion, um, what's the word I'm looking for, um, divert attention away from these debates and clashes, but we all had a common narrative. What was the common narrative? We were running away to our homeland. Forget the security situation. Forget the expansion. But we were running after 2,000 years of suffering and 2,000 years of discrimination. And the Holocaust was a major, major part of that narrative. And it was part of the narrative, even for Sephardic Jews, who weren't imperiled by the Holocaust, because in part because they identified with the plight of their Ashkenazic brethren, so there was less of a divide between Ashkenazi and Sephardi, in part because a few years after the Ashkenazi Holocaust, when the State of Israel was declared, so Jews in Sephardic lands suffered, not a Holocaust, you wouldn't call it genocide, but uprooting, expulsion, pogroms, having their wealth stripped, losing their national wealth. And it seems as like the Ashkenazi and the Sephardi narrative we're not that different. Remember the blood libels in the 19th century in Damascus and in Arabic lands. So the Holocaust was a common narrative, even though very few Sephardic Jews, if any, ever visited Treblinka or Auschwitz or caught in the Vilna ghetto or the Kovna ghetto. But as that narrative starts to fade, and as the Holocaust gets lost in the rearview mirror of history, we've lost that common narrative of suffering and of finding a safe haven it came to a horrible, horrible expression over the last couple of days. I think it was this past weekend or last weekend, I forget. I'm trying not to follow the day-to-day. I'm trying to give myself some mental airspace to reflect and to think, and of course, to learn. The yeshiva's still going on. This is the last day. The yeshiva's at Baruch Hashem. This was to learn until the very end and to give shir to the very end. But one of the Sephardic um, Likud activists, I don't know if his rank, but he was Sephardic and he was a Likud activist, was at a protest, and there's been counter-protests against the protests which are against judicial reform. There have been counter-protests in favor of judicial reform. And he was so angered by the um, pro-reform, anti-reform protesters that he screamed at them, you Ashkenazi, you disgusting Ashkenazi, disgusting Ashkenazim, you know, I'm happy six million died in the Holocaust and were burnt in the Holocaust, and more should have died in the Holocaust. And this led, of course, to a huge, huge public outcry, as it did, as it should. From all corners, even his supporters were embarrassed, and he himself very, very quickly withdrew and apologized, and it was just said in a fit of anger, although obviously what we say in anger is reflective of our views. I'm not excusing or justifying it. But to me, it showed that 30 years ago, 20 years ago, no one would dare say that. The Holocaust was taboo. It was our common and joint suffering, and and to see that it reached that level just showed me that that's no longer the common narrative that's uniting us despite our differences. So this is my analysis of what's happening. I haven't told you my narrative of how to interpret it and how to see it through the lens of Tisha B'Av, but it's just so much of frustration in our life happens when we don't know why something is happening. And knowledge is power, and clarity is empowering. We know what's happening, we're able to assess it, to analyze it, and to manage it differently than we just feel overwhelmed and disempowered and victimized. So this is what's happening. And it's a big divide. And I've never experienced a divide like this. And because it's four different layers. 
and because all the unifiers of the last 75 years are beginning to fray. And you see how divisive it is, in my opinion, not by the pictures and the burning and the screaming, but you're seeing two completely different emotions being expressed by either side. It's like they're not even talking to each other, they're just voicing their pain. From the pro-reform, those who are supporting reform, the emotion I pick up is anger. Deep-seated hatred. We are tired of being discriminated against. We are tired of being degraded. We are tired of being cast as second-class citizens. We are tired of being embarrassed about our ethnicity. We are tired about being bullied from the Supreme Court. We are angry and tired that you are trying to erase religion and national identity. There's anger, there's tired, there's frustration, there's... And then from the... I don't, again, I don't like using left and right, I hate those terms, but from the anti-judicial reform protesters, I don't feel that emotion. The emotion I get from them is dread and fear. Like, where is this heading? This is the country that we sacrificed for, that our grandparents built, imagined, envisioned, formulated committed to, devoted their lives to, where's this all heading? Like, what's going to happen next? Today, uh, judicial reform, tomorrow, dictatorial imposition, religious coercion. I I don't get anger. I mean, everyone's frustrated, obviously. But if you just drill down, one side is angry and one side is afraid. And it's just, as ironic as it sounds, just shows how how divisive and how, dis- di- how different the two parties are. And no one's really listening to the other party. I, I'm, I'll talk about this in a few minutes, but it's as if they're broadcasting at different frequencies. The pro-reform protesters are broadcasting in a frequency of anger. And the anti-reform protesters are broadcasting in a frequency of despair and hopelessness and fear and dread and where's tomorrow heading. And of course... Part of the difference in those emotions is that one is the, so to speak, resident ruling power, and they're not afraid because they feel they have political power, which of course is easy come, easy go. It's very, it's fool's goal. It can come, it can leave tomorrow. And those who are opposing judicial reform, they feel disempowered because they're not in government, so they're just afraid of where all this is heading. They don't feel that they have the ability to steer the ship and to control the ship. So, here's the question. Question is, how do you interpret this? So what has hurt me is listening to very, very simplistic, non-thoughtful interpretations. And this is a summary of what I've heard. Well, that's who we are. We're Jews. We fight. We squabble. We're fated to be obstinate, stiff-necked, intransigent. This is a lesson we're doomed to constantly repeat. So it was in the second base of Mikdash in particular, so it was throughout history. It's happening again. Let's dive in and say to Helen that it shouldn't. Of course, everyone's saying to Helen, <laughs> take that narrative or another narrative. That's pessimistic. That's morose. That's contemptuous of Jews and contemptuous of Jewish history. I prefer a more optimistic approach. And this is my optimistic approach. Anytime we shift, some of these differences are going to come to the surface. When we're not going through dramatic major shifts, then everything is just more muted, more self-contained. So, for example, in the second base of Mikdash, why was there so much Sinashinam? Well, a lot of answers to that question, but the core of it was the Stuki Prushi. 
sectorialization or fissure, which then led to other fissurings. And what was a big deal about the Tzitukim and the Prushim? Let's be honest about it. Because we're segueing into a world of Torah Shavopah. So until we had to make that shift, everything was day in, day out, same old, same old routine. And everyone more or less carried on. But when you have to face these new shifts into history, you're going to expose these scabs and these deep divisions that come about that are under normal conditions overlooked. And we're going through a shift now. And not only going through a shift, but we're trying to learn to live with people that we really haven't lived with that much over the last 2,000 years, and it's our fault. And this is where I trace it back to Tishabov. Think about how Tishabov caused the current political situation, but not because we were so bad, we got thrown out of Yushalayim, we're terrible people, we're a terrible nation, and here we are, it's happening again. But for whatever reason, we betrayed Hashem's trust and betrayed our commitments. We were evicted from Yushalayim, and we spent 2,000 years apart. Some of us lived in France and Germany, Poland and Russia. Some of us lived in Iraq and Egypt and Morocco and Syria. Some of us, for whatever reason, along the line, lost their classic religious observance. Some of us maintained it. Some of us became more pluralistic and universalist and people of the world community. Some of us became and retained more of our nationalism. And all this is our fault because we've lived apart. Just like you live apart, you spend a couple months away from your spouse. It's hard to get back on the same page. You haven't seen your child in a while. You find your own arcs and your own narratives. And this is what I call, not Chevle Mashiach, because that's too general, but Chevle Kibbutz Galias. You think Kibbutz Galias is a cakewalk? You think Kibbutz Galias is all peachy, peaches and cream, rainbows and ribbons? Yeah, Baruch Hashem, we're thrilled. That's just the beginning. Now that we're under one roof, until HaKadosh Baruch Hu superimposes unity and eliminates all these strifes and dis- disparities through some act of Hashem, intervention of God, it's on us. And it's going to take a while. But we'll get there. Because what unites us is deeper than what divides us. And there's a lot of anger and a lot of dread my own personal optimistic view is it's good that it's getting out because when things get out, you hear, and at some point people are going to start listening to each other. At the very least, the people who say to feel they've had their voice and it's been expressed and you need to feel that you're heard. And at some point, maybe in our lifetimes, maybe not, we're going to start listening to each other and understanding these differences. So instead of saying narrative number one, we're terrible people, we're obstinate, and we never miss an opportunity to fight with one another, Narrative number two is, we're great people. Our obstinacy is our greatest asset. When shifts happen in history, it's natural for people to argue about how that trajectory will be shaped. We're going through a shift. Not only are we going through a shift in history, but we're reacclimating to live with people that are different from us, that we know are the same as us, but are different from us. And they're different from us in four different ways. It could be politically different, ethnically different, religiously different, nationalistic or pluralistically different. And I'd be surprised, quite frankly, if this didn't happen. So hopefully, with HaKadosh Baruch Hu's help, we'll navigate this process and we'll find the commonality that unites us. But pessimism and angst and where are we heading and doomsday prophets 
don't help the situation. They're not reflective of HaKadosh Baruch Hu's Haftachas us. As I keep saying in so many of my shiurim, optimism is part of Emuna. Confidence in the future, especially at this stage in history, is has to stem from Emuna. If it isn't there, then the Emuna is lacking. So we should all have meaningful fast and daven that we should repair all the fissures that are leaving Yushalayim caused 2,000 years ago and continue to cause and find the unity that will help us achieve Gula.